We turn now to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, which also will be our text this morning. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. May God bless this uh, solemn passage to our souls. Dear congregation, The portion of God's Word before us this morning is an incredibly solemn, solemn portion. It teaches us that you and I must appear in our resurrected humanity before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the final judgment on the final day. And we will give an account of every word, every thought, and every action that we have ever engaged in. And that day, the sheep will be separated from the goats, the good fish from the bad fish, And we will enter into the law court, into the great assize of the triune God. And you and I shall go to one of two places. The dead will be raised, the earth will be renovated, and every one of us will enter into judgment with God. That's what Revelation 20, 11 through 15 teaches us. We want to look at that this morning with a solemn prayer that in this sermon, sinners will be saved as we come to stand here and now before the judgment seat of Christ so that it will become eternity before eternity, this morning, in the reality of our souls. And that we would hear the word of God this morning in all its simplicity and power and seriousness for every one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. I'll read again just now, only verse 11a. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it. With God's help, we want to look at this theme this morning, final judgment at the great white throne. And we'll look at three thoughts. First, the judge on the great white throne. 
Second, the judged, that is, who they are, who will be judged, before the great white throne. And third, the judgment, that is, how the day of judgment will go from the great white throne. Final judgment at the great white throne. The judge, the judged, and the judgment. The one that John sees on the great white throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. He who said of himself in Matthew 25, 31 and 32, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them from one another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from his goats. So there can be no doubt who we are speaking about this morning as the judge who sits upon the throne. And the encouragement in this for the people of God is that this judgment will take place by the God-man. That is to say, he who is glorified in our human nature. In other words, this judgment will not only be divine, but also humane. Because Jesus Christ took our nature was touched with a feeling of our infirmities and was tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. So no one will be able to say of this judge, he doesn't know what it is like to live on this earth as a human. This judge is out of touch. He is unsympathetic. No, no. He's been here. He's lived in the smoke of sin. He knows. He understands. So Calvin has it right when he said, it is no inconsiderable security that we shall stand before no other tribunal than that of our own great Redeemer. Dear child of God, it's your Redeemer who will judge you on the great white throne. That is a happy circumstance for you. Now what John sees in his opening words is a a throne. But the throne is great. And the throne is white. And I want to show you this morning that all three of these facts have Many, many implications. Much to teach us. So we're going to look first at John seeing the throne, what a throne is symbolic of. Second, we'll look at the implications that it's a great throne, and then we'll consider that it's a white throne. So what is Scripture painting for us when we see that this is, first of all, a throne in the vision of of John. Well, a throne speaks of many things. A throne speaks, first of all, of judgment. When you think of a throne, you think of, of judgment. In Psalm 9, we read, He hath prepared his throne for judgment. A throne makes you think of a law court where cases are judged. And in Revelation 20, as we've seen the cycle after cycle after cycle of events running from the first advent of Christ to the second advent of Christ, and now we come to the final judgment, we understand at the end, in the last chapters of this book, that this is a prepared throne for judgment. There's nothing the Lord will leave unprepared on this day. And you and I, are hastening to this throne and to this judgment. 
you may not be prepared for this throne. But ultimately, that is irrelevant because God has prepared this throne for you. And you will be there, not at your timing or according to your desire, but according to his timing in his desire. No one will be able to postpone one day the great day of judgment. A throne speaks of judgment. Secondly, a throne speaks of authority. Authority. John says, I saw him that sat upon it, sitting as a posture, particularly in heaven, of victory, of someone who's accomplished something. Christ has earned the right to sit there. He's appointed. He's anointed. He's qualified to sit there. He sits there upon the command of his own father. Psalm 2 verse 6 says, speaking of the father, uh, addressing the son, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And that king upon that holy hill is appointed, Acts 17.31, to judge all men. A throne speaks of authority. Third, a throne speaks of royalty. Royalty. A throne is for a king. This is part of Christ's kingly office, that he comes to rule. He comes to judge. He comes to sit on the judgment seat. Isaiah brings these two ideas together when he says, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. You see, he's a royal judge. He's a judging king. His judgment will be a royal judgment. It's important to understand this. That he's not just a king, but he's the king. Here on this earth, when you have a court case and you want to appeal, you can go to a court and you get a response and you can appeal to a higher court the next court level. And feasibly, if your case is merited, the, the, the worth of it, you could appeal all the way to the Supreme Court where nine justices in this land determine the case with finality. But when John sees this throne set in heaven, a great white throne, a throne of royalty, and him who is the Lord of lords and King of kings sitting upon it. He is saying by implication, Christ is the supreme court. His word is the word, as it were, of all nine justices. On the day of days, he will pronounce final judgment. There will be no further court of appeal. Jesus hints at that in Matthew 25 when he says, as he separates the sheep from the goats, then shall the king say, not a king, the king say, depart from me to the ungodly and to the godly. Come and enter into the joy of the Lord. A throne speaks of royalty. Fourthly, a throne speaks of summons. Summons. You and I will be unavoidably summoned to appear before this king. A kingly warrant will go out to every person that has ever lived. Also to you, children. Every one of us. Small and great, says our text. Young and old. Rich and poor. Will appear before the king of kings. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and after that, the judgment. The two, you see, are inseparable. Death means judgment on the great day. The two are bonded together. 
There's no compromise. There's no postponement of this appointment. No negotiations. No bail or no parole to get out of this obligation. We all must die. We all must stand before the judge of heaven and earth. There's an unavoidable summons from the throne of thrones by the king of kings for every one of us. And five, a throne speaks of condemnation. If you're not found in Christ, you will be consigned to everlasting fire and torment from this throne together with the devil and his angels. Whosoever, says the text, was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. My dear friends, you believe the Bible. You believe the Bible speaks truth. You even believe the things I'm saying to you are true, I trust. Your conscience is not dead. It may be dulled. It may be half seared, but it's not dead. You know, and your conscience speaks. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You too are going to see the great white throne and the royal judge upon the throne. And I ask you this morning, how will you stand before this judge and this throne? Will you hear his voice now? Will you bend the knee to the King of Kings now? Or will you put off this great day? until it's impossible to put it off any longer. And then it's too late to repent, too late to believe the gospel. Will you meet this king in his wrath? Or will you meet him in his mercy? It's a trembling thing to think of meeting this king on a throne of condemnation. Sixthly, a throne speaks of glory. A throne is a glorious place. Glory, you know, kabat from Hebrew means weighty. It's valuable. It's weighty. It's got substance to it. It's majestic. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all His holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. Twice, one verse, he speaks of his glory. That's a glory well earned. After all, he's a spotless son of God. When he came to this earth in his humiliation, his glory was veiled most of the time, certainly before the common people. When he was in the manger, when he had no place to lay his head, when he hung upon the accursed tree, when he lay in the tomb, his glory was veiled. Veiled from everyone except those who had true saving faith, who could see through his sufferings his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full, says John, of grace and truth. But you see, that's only possible to see by faith. But now when he sits as a judge on his great white throne, Everyone, the ungodly, shall see his glory. Here in the days of his humiliation, Jesus Christ was judged of men. He was brought before the throne room of men. He was arraigned at the bar of civil justice in this world, both condemned by Jewish ecclesiastical justices and by Gentile justices. They crucified the Lord of glory. But now, on this day, the tables will be reversed. Now it will be Christ arraigning the Jews and Gentiles before him. Now men will tremble before his bar of justice, knowing that he has the final word, not Pilate, not Caiaphas, not Herod, and his judgment will be the final judgment. And so in this world, 
Still today, people will marginalize or ignore or despise or reject the Son of Man, the Son of God. But it will no longer be true in the day of His glory. He that hung on the cross as a criminal will sit on the throne of glory. And every knee shall bow before that glory. And every tongue shall confess His glory. The throne speaks of glory. And the throne speaks of personal reality. John says, I saw a great white throne and Him that sat upon it. It's personal. It's a personal throne. It belongs to Jesus Christ. That throne is His property. That throne is not impersonal. He will judge on the basis of His law. He will judge on the basis of His gospel. His throne is all about Jesus Christ. This throne compels the question, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Is he your prophet who teaches you and admonishes you? Are you his pupil in his school? Is he your priest? Do you need him in his sacrifice, his intercession, his blessing? Is he your king to rule and guide you? Do you bow under his lordship? What does Jesus Christ mean to you? That will be the big question on the great day. Christ will tell you personally also what he thinks of you, not just what you think of him. But what he thinks of you will be directly related to what you think of him. If you think he is altogether lovely, if you think he is your only salvation, if you think that his righteousness, his active obedience to the law, and his passive obedience to pay for sin is your total salvation, his thoughts of you will be thoughts of peace because you will find Him to be your peace. And He will be your King. When Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, Behold your King to the people. But they said, Crucify Him. But one day, dear friend, every one of us shall behold our King, either to life eternal or to life forsaken to life of condemnation. But if you think of him here as someone to marginalize and push away, if you think of him here as they did in Jesus' day, we will not have this man to rule over us. You will not be able to stand before him there. He will say to you, sinner, you will not reign with me. You will not be with me to all eternity. You would not have me reign over you, and so now I will not have you remain with me. Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So don't say to him today, I pledge allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, one day in the future. Don't don't wait like Felix for a convenient season. You could die today. I warn you, I warn you in love, my dear friend, that it will be his convenient season soon to cast you into hell without delay when you keep delaying, responding by his grace to his call. And finally, a throne speaks of grace. This throne is still a throne of grace today. In the gospel, the Lord exhorts us. He invites you. He commands you to come to his throne as a throne of grace. And that day, in the day of our text, this throne as a throne of grace will no longer be open for sinners to come to find grace had they not found it before. But now today, 
Acts 5.31 tells us, He gives repentance and forgiveness of sins so that you may come with your blind eyes open and your deaf ears unstopped and may come to Him as you are, laboring and heavy laden, and He will give you rest and He will bring you before His throne as a throne of grace and peace. Oh, sinner, fly to this throne, this throne of grace. Come to grace, for grace. Come leaning upon the merits of Christ. Oh, maybe you say, I have no strength to come. Well, come to him for strength to come. He says to sinners, lay hold of my strength. Look to me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. For the very grace you need to come to my throne of grace is available to you. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come, come to the throne of grace before you're dragged to the throne of judgment. Now this throne, says John, is a great throne. It's a great throne in part because the judged, and that's our second thought, shall come before this throne. And the judged shall see it's a great throne. Everyone, everyone shall appear before this throne. The judged is every human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth. No one shall escape. And everyone shall come on one day to that great throne. What a gathering that will be. Many premillennialists today argue that there are two judgments separated by a thousand years. The judgment seat of Christ for believers, where believers are assessed. Then a thousand years later, the great white throne where unbelievers are judged and condemned. But that's not what the Bible says anywhere, directly. Again and again, the Bible pictures the judgment as one. Our text says in verse 12 and 13, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They were judged, every man, according to their works. There's going to be a general resurrection of believers and unbelievers. And we know that because here is mentioned also the book of life as well as the other books. So there's not two resurrections and two judgments separated by exactly a thousand years. Jesus says plainly in John 5, 28, 29, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So it makes no difference who you are, how you die, when you die, where you die, how your remains are disposed of, whether buried at sea or cremated or buried in the earth. The sea will give up its dead. Hades, literally here instead of hell. The state of death, that means, will release its captives. And death and Hades will be no more on that day, our text says. This is a picture of the finality of judgment. Death and Hades, the state of death, will be exhausted. Every body shall be resurrected. There will be no more separation of body and soul, no more state of death in heaven or in hell. And that's why our text says that death and Hades, which are personified here, are thrown into the lake of fire because their work is finished. Yes, the damned will wish they could be dead. But they won't be able to be dead. They will be dying, ever dying, but never dead. And everyone will stand before the great white throne. Our text says in verse 12, we shall all stand before God. That's the position of a servant. 
God will rule over us. He will control our future destiny. And we will see him with our very own eyes. As Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And yet in my flesh, though after my skin worms destroy this body, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Now that's extremely comforting for a believer, but it's extremely disconcerting for an unbeliever. Your eyes shall see him for yourself. Everyone shall see him. That ought to challenge us. That ought to make us understand that our entire lives will be assessed. We will not escape the scrutiny of God in that day. Also not believers. We'll see in a moment how they will enter in. But all that we do and say and think will come forward on the day of judgment. Scripture seems quite plain there. Five or six times in the Bible. Both believers and unbelievers shall appear before God. There are believers, there are believers who have built with hay and stubble and shall scarcely be saved, says the New Testament, but so as by fire, yet they will be saved. How much better to be solidly, clearly saved in the blood of Christ and have a life that shows that you've lived as a fruit of that blood. And enter in with a history of being motivated to bring the gospel to the lost. And understanding what the judgment is all about. Knowing the terror of the Lord, says Paul, we persuade men. That's how every Christian should be in this world. A persuader of men by the grace of God. Telling every man including ourselves, we must all appear, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That makes this throne great. But how will the judgment proceed? What will actually happen? Well, let's look at that in our third thought. Well, John saw that this throne is great, Not only because everyone will be judged, and there'll be a multitude that no man can number, but also because all the events of that great and notable day of the Lord, as Peter calls it, will be great. Revelation 6.17 speaks of it as the great day of His wrath that has come. Sometimes people speak about a great day in this world. You say to each other, well, I had a great day. But I say to you, congregation, that every day that you call great is small and insignificant compared to this day. It was a great throne because this is the greatest of all days. The great day of judgment. The greatest of events will happen on this day. Let me give you some of them. First of all, it will be a day of great surprises. The Lord Jesus will come as a thief in the night. When people are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, like the days of Lot, the days of Noah, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, they will be unprepared for this surprise. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Millions will be caught totally unprepared and will be totally surprised. Will you be one of them? Secondly, this will be a great throne on this great day because it will be accompanied with great sounds. There will be a great noise, a great shout, the sound of the trump, the last trump, 
the heaven and earth will flee away and shall add to this noise as they are consumed, as it were, with fire. And thirdly, there'll be great attendance. Christ will come with great attendance and great glory. He'll come with thousands times ten thousands of holy angels and thousands times ten thousands of the souls of saints made perfect. And then there'll be a great renovation. And Christ comes, verse 11 tells us, that the earth and the heavens shall flee from his face. The universe will be renovated through fire, but not destroyed or annihilated. Sometimes we get that wrong, but Simon Kistemacher puts it, I think, rightly this way. When the judgment day comes, God's creation will be affected in such a way that the earth will undergo a complete change. At that moment, catastrophic events of enormous proportions will happen. The atmosphere will be rolled up like a scroll to be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. The old order disappears to give place to the new. The substance and the existence of the earth does not disappear, but its external form dissolves. Although a literal interpretation would suggest the complete destruction and annihilation of the heavens and the earth, Scripture actually teaches, think of 2 Peter 3, a meltdown of the elements, but not their elimination. So not creation itself, but the defects of the old order are removed to make place for the new. What a great renovation this will be with the judge and the great white throne at the center of it all. And then there will be a great gathering. Fifthly, a great gathering. What a great gathering that shall be. All the judged, as I said, but also the angels will be there. There'll be no exceptions, no exemptions. The greatest gathering the world has ever known. And then sixthly, it will be a great judgment. A great judgment at the great throne. The judge will be brought before the greatest judgment that will ever transpire. This judgment is the judgment of all other judgments. This judgment will judge the very judgments of men. A woman I sat next to on the plane some weeks ago going down to South Africa. When I asked her the question, what will happen if I'm right and you're wrong? And there will be a judgment and there will be an afterlife. Because she said, dead is dead and there will be no resurrection. She paused and then she said to me, well, then you will get a much better end of the deal than me. You see, my friend, God's judgment will judge the judgments of men. All the courts of the earth will be placed before this great last judgment. And all of men's opinions, what they think, will be irrelevant before the judge of heaven and earth. And the word of God and the text we're preaching this morning will prove to be true. There will be a great white throne and all men shall appear before this judge. And seventhly, there will be a great jurisdiction. This judgment will have a very wide, encompassing, all-encompassing domain. You see, in this earth's court system, courts in this land can only judge cases of United States of America. Some courtrooms can only judge cases for certain states or certain cities, or certain districts within certain cities. But there will be nothing foreign on this courtroom day. Everything will be brought to bear. Every thought, every word, every deed. John Wesley said he thinks it will take thousands of years for every single person to give an account of everything. Well, I'm not sure that's right. We don't know, of course. But it would seem rather to me that God, who has a complete memory, will be able to, as it were, 
expose our entire lives in but a moment. Just like people who have near-death experiences say their entire life can come back in a moment. We don't need endless, endless, endless amounts of time to repeat everything and display everything. God can expose it all in a moment. But however it takes place, you see, everything will be judged in that day. Everything will be exposed. Not just things done with our eyes or our hands or our feet, but everything that's flowed through our heart. Every idle word, every idle thought, every wish, every imagination, every secret, every motive. If our secrets, our secret thoughts were paraded before each other this morning, we would all be ashamed and we would blush. But one day they will be paraded before all mankind. Yes, more before the triune God. Oh, how we need then to fly to the blood, to the blood of Christ for cleansing. For if we're not in Him, that parading will not just be embarrassing and shaming, but it will be eternally condemning. But in Christ, It will only magnify His glory and His grace. And then there will be great witnesses. Great witnesses on that day before the great throne. God will summon those witnesses. He says in Malachi 3 verse 5, To the ungodly, I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness Against those who fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. God himself will be the first witness. And he will say, sinner, I brought you the gospel, but I know, I know, I'm a witness against you, that you never fled to me, you never feared me in truth, you never bent the knee and surrendered to me. But he will also summon the law. The law will accuse us. We may trust in our self-righteousness, but the law will condemn us as a violator of every commandment thousands of times. And all of our righteousnesses will be as filthy rags on that day, weighed in the balances of the law. Who can stand? No man. And our conscience will accuse us in that day. It will bear witness against us, as Romans 1 says. No matter how much we try to pacify it here, it will be impossible to pacify it there. Christ and the gospel will be swift witnesses against us. Great witnesses. The blood of Calvary will be the greatest witness against us. What will it be to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to say, Lord Jesus Thou hast offered thy blood to save me, but I have never seen my sins sufficient enough to drive me to that blood. And so I've avoided that blood. I've bypassed that blood. I've rejected that blood. And he will say, I came all the way to the earth and suffered and died for sinners and opened my invitation to you and declared I would save you freely. And you rejected it? Away with you. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. And even if you were to try to enter into heaven in that day, you would not get far because you would be like the man without the wedding garment on. You will be speechless as you are exposed and as you are cast out as a gospel rejecter. And then, ninthly, there will be a great separation on that day. It's a great throne because a great separation will happen right there before that throne. All the sheep will be placed on the right hand of Christ and the goats on the left. And from this great throne, a great gulf will be fixed. Those in glory will never leave glory. Those in hell will never escape hell. And the sheep will hear the voice of the great deliverer, a voice of peace and pardon, because their judgment has already been passed 
at Calvary for them. They will be assessed on that day, but they will not enter into condemnation on that day. Because on the basis of Christ's obedience, the great judge shall proclaim, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But the goats shall hear of their great condemnation, depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire. They shall experience unchanging and unchangeable condemnation in hell because of their own wretched unbelief and sin. But that raises the great question, a question that often people don't understand rightly. On what basis are we going to be judged? If you read verses 12 and 13 carefully, it says twice in those verses, every man will be judged according to his own works and according to the books that shall be opened. What books are these? Well, the Bible speaks of of several books. Four books, actually. They're not literal books, of course. John is speaking, of course, again here symbolically. But they're like books. The first book is the book of God's remembrance. God's remembrance. The early church father, Augustine, said, this will be the main book. These books are symbolic of the divine memory. Nothing will be forgotten by God. It is nothing for God to remember every thought and every word and every action you've ever done. We forget. We easily forget. But God is not like us. That was God's complaint about us in Psalm 50. He said, You think I keep silence because I'm altogether such a one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set your sins in order before your eyes. You see, we forget people's telephone numbers. We forget their names. We forget all kinds of facts and things and thoughts because we're finite. But God is saying, I'm not like that. There's a day coming in which I will set everything before you. Not as some jumbled mess, but in the very order of your life. Your thoughts, your words, your deeds. The book of my memory will be opened. And if we're not in Christ in that day, you know, you know, your conscience knows, you will not stand before this God. But there's a second book to be open. It's the book of the law. Romans 1 and 2 makes it very plain that he judges every man according to his holy law. The law written upon our conscience. And there is a basis of judgment in that law. No one will be able to complain on the judgment day that God judges them unfairly by the law. For as many as sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, Paul says. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Even those who've never heard the gospel, you see, will be judged by the law. Judged according to their works. What does that mean for a believer? Well, we too will be judged by our works. Because you see, whoever is justified will be sanctified. And sanctification is an inevitable fruit, therefore, of justification That sanctification includes good works, works that are done to God's glory, done by faith, and done out of love for God and love for our neighbor. If we've never done any of those kinds of works, then we're not saved. Now, that doesn't mean our works are perfect. Happily, there's another book, a book of life that goes open. And we're saved by the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus alone. But we will be judged by our works. Because our works will evidence whether we are in Christ, yes or no. So the Lord will judge people, all people, according to their works. Not because salvation is by works, but because salvation produces works. That's why Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. 
But happily, these good works only give evidence that we've been justified. Our eternal destiny does not depend upon the number of our good works or the perfection of those good works. No, we'll be judged by another book that goes open rather there. That is the book of gospel. Not the book of remembrance only or the book of law only, but the book of gospel. In that day, says Paul, God shall judge the secrets of many by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We hear the gospel every week. We're invited to respond to the gospel every week. We're called by the gospel every week. On the day of judgment, this will come back. And those who received it, those who have repented and believed the gospel, are precisely those whose names are written in the book of life because by nature none of us will. We'll, we'll reject it. We'll, 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 we'll run hell bound. And we won't turn to the Lord of glory. And so we're told in verse 15 that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so the real question you see in our lives is on whose righteousness are we leaning? Are we leaning on the righteousness of Christ or are we leaning on our own righteousness? And thus there's this combination in judgment, isn't there? We get into heaven only by the blood passport of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but that passport is validated by a life of sanctification that evidences justification. Both things are biblical. The Bible nowhere validates that faith as saving that does not transform a person in the totality of his life. If you don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you don't long for holiness, if you don't see that salvation is totally out of, outside of you and Jesus Christ, if you don't bear any of the marks and fruits and actions of grace, it's a sign you're not saved. And so we're judged according to our works. But those works will validate that we're in the book of life. God's electing love. And so as death leaves us, judgment will find us. And as judgment finds us, eternity will open its arms to embrace us and never to release us, be it for well or be it for woe. And so it's critical, congregation, that we're in Christ because even our best works are still stained by sin. So ultimately, the real question is, on whose works am I resting? My works, by the grace of God, give evidence and I'm justified. Yes, but I don't rest on those works. I rest on the works of Christ who justified me. Ultimately, I'm judged according to his works, his perfect obedience, his righteousness. And therefore, my hope is this, as a poet put it, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And you see our conscience. That's the last book, our conscience. Not only book of remembrance and law and gospel, but the book of conscience will validate that. Even right now, as you're sitting here this morning, you know your conscience will validate one or the other. Either you are living out of your own righteousness and you're on your way to hell, or you are living out of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he is your exclusive and your total and your precious hope. It is one or the other congregation. And on the great day of judgment, when that will be exposed, your righteousness or Christ's, the book of conscience will validate it, and no one who goes to hell will be able to say, I don't deserve to be here. And no one that goes to heaven will be able to say, I deserve to be here. Heaven will be all grace, and hell will be all merit. And then tenthly, 
This is a great throne because from it issues a great salvation. The Christ who sits on this great throne is a great Savior, a great God, and a great Redeemer. And everything that he will work for his people on that day will be to this great salvation so that they may enter into glory and be united with him and be sin-free in Emmanuel's land and be married to him and be spotless in soul and in body forever and ever. And finally, eleventhly, this is a great throne because it is a white throne. A white throne. I saw a great white throne. And what does white mean? What does whiteness mean in the Bible? Well, it's too, of course, is symbolic. It's symbolic of, of a Four things, and three of them really refer to the attributes of God, the very character of God. First of all, white is symbolic of righteousness. It speaks of doing what is right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You see, this is the character of God. He's a God who does right. He judges righteously. His judgments will be clean and clear and pure The Bible says in righteousness he does judge. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Every conscience will agree his judgment is white. But secondly, white symbolizes holiness. Christ's judgment will be holy. He will be white in judging the goats to condemnation. It will be a holy judgment to destroy them in hell forever. And their conscience will speak, I'm in hell and I deserve to be here. But he'll also be white in grinding acquittal to his sheep. He'll be white because his righteousness, his white robe righteousness will be put on them. There'll be no spot, no wrinkle in his beloved. And third, whiteness symbolizes victorious justice. Victorious justice. Notice in verse 12, again, that there's another book, the Lamb's Book of Life. You see it in verse 15 as well. And you see, because he's paid the ransom, because he's paid the price, he finds no fault in his people for his own name's sake. In themselves they were guilty, just like others, but in him they are victorious. And so in Jesus Christ is our refuge. The white lamb who committed no sin, shed his scarlet blood so that scarlet sinners might be dressed in white robes, robes that they wash in the blood of the Lamb. How do I wash my robe in the blood of the Lamb? By taking refuge, spirit-worked, spirit-given refuge in the Lamb, in Christ, in his promises. Robert Murray McShane was once asked this question, and this was his answer. When Jesus says to you, I know your sin, you should say to him, I know your sufferings. When he says to you, I know all your lack, and your lacks are many, you should say to him, I know your fullness. When he says to you, I know that you have got little strength, you say to him, I know that thou hast got all strength, for thou art almighty. When he says to you, I know your folly, say you to him, I know thy wisdom, what treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in thee. When he says to you, I know what darkness is in thee, then say thou to him, I know what is light, what light is in thee. You see, that's the way to take refuge in Christ. Take his promises, take his qualities, take his salvific attributes, and turn them back to him. Tell him who he is. Tell him that you put all your trust in him and none in yourself. And you will get the victory by his grace. Also, a just victory, a white victory, so that on the great day, You will be brought before the great white throne in white robes into white glory, receiving a white stone. 
and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. And finally, white is not only a symbol of justice and righteousness and holiness, but also of conspicuousness. You can't avoid a white throne. It glitters, it shines, it's bright. No one will miss that white throne, that great white throne. Every eye shall see him, says John. He will be absolutely conspicuous. Your eye as well. And what will you do? What will you do if in that day you are unprepared for that throne? My friend, it will be absolutely tragic. Please don't postpone it any longer. Remember how John Bunyan deals with this? I close with this this morning. Remember how John Bunyan deals with this? When Christian gets convicted of his sin and he meets evangelist, the minister, who comes to him and says, what is bothering you? And he says, I'm not ready to die. And evangelist says, why aren't you willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? And Christian responds, because I fear that this burden upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. It sink me into hell. And what does the evangelist say at that point? That's the minister. Does he say, well, there's nothing you can do about it, so just hope for the best? Come to church and fulfill the rituals of religion? And just hope that everything will turn out well? Of course not. He says, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? And Christian says, I, but I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And evangelist says, flee. Flee from the wrath to come. And Christian says, but where? Whither must I fly? Evangelist says, do you see yonder wicked gate? I think I do, says Christian. Keep that light in your eye and go directly to it. And it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. He puts a parchment in his hand. He says, flee from the wrath to come. You must flee to the narrow gate. Flee to the wicked gate. Flee to Jesus Christ. So what does Christian do? They say, well, I don't have legs to go. I can't, I can't go. No, no. He puts his fingers in his ears while his neighbors are calling him back and mocking with him. Even his wife and children are trying to call him back. He puts his fingers in his ears and he says, no, no. Life, life, eternal life. And he runs. He cannot stay away. He must be saved. Dear congregation, you must be born again. You must repent of your sin. You must believe the gospel. You must fly to Jesus Christ without delay. Why standest thou still? I close with this quick illustration. Jeremiah Burroughs tells of a woman in his day whose house was on fire, and she ran in and she gathered all the trifles, all the memorabilia. She ran back out and the house collapsed, and suddenly she remembered in her panic, she forgot her baby. And she cried out with a weeping and a wailing that could be heard far away. I have all the stuff but I don't have my child. Don't you live that way. Don't you live that way. That you build a nest egg for yourself and you have, you have the frame of your life, as it were. You have all kinds of things that go into the frame, but the real picture, the real life you're missing, the life in Jesus Christ, miss that, you miss everything. You can't go on that way. You must repent. You must believe the gospel. How shall you stand before Jesus Christ one day and say, Lord Jesus, I went to church. 
I, I, I did all kinds of things. I didn't swear. I, I had a good job. I, I, I did all. I was respected by people all around. My neighbors all thought I was a Christian. But I didn't know the Christ. And I rejected your blood. And he will say, depart from me. And he will throw you into the lake of fire. You must be born again. Amen. Gracious God, teach us the solemnity, the urgency, the simplicity of the gospel. And please, Lord, please take away every excuse of every unconverted person in this place for staying away from the Savior one more day. Oh, God, let the scales fall from their eyes and awaken them from the dead and give them light, Lord Jesus, before it will be forever too late. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.